1: Hello, everyone, and welcome to New Books in Sociology, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I am Sneha Navarapu, the host of this channel, and today I'm in conversation with Dr. Paige Sweet about her book, The Politics of Surviving, How Women Navigate Domestic Violence and Its Aftermath, which is published by the University of California Press in 2021. Dr. Sweet is an assistant professor of sociology at the University of Michigan, Ann Arbor, I must add that Dr. Sweet is indeed a brilliant scholar, but is also one of the kindest academics I know and I'm truly grateful for this opportunity to chat with her on this platform. I hope you enjoy the conversation as much as I did. Hi Paige, welcome to New Books Network, I'm so excited that you're here, congratulations on the book and I'm so thrilled to chat with you about the politics of surviving.
0: Thank you so much for having me. So let's start
1: the conversation by getting to know you a little bit better. Could you tell us a little bit about how you became a sociologist?
0: Sure, yeah. Um, I mean, I think like a lot of people, I didn't quite know what I was getting into when I um, became a sociologist, but I always was interested in gender and sexuality. Um, That's always been, um, you know, the kind of motivator for me. Um, and I knew I wanted to work somehow in gender-based violence. So I had done, um, some, you know, community work related to domestic violence and anti-rape work and it had become, you know, a major passion of mine. So I knew I wanted to, um, you know, either to go into social work maybe and work in the field or, um, or research this, this issue. And eventually I decided that I wanted writing to be a part of my life. And so I decided that the best fit for me would be to, you know, collect people's stories and and write about their lives. So, so that's what I decided to do. So, um, you know, domestic violence, trying to understand it, trying to sort of um, work with survivors and think through their experiences. That was, that was always a sort of major motivation for me to get into this.
1: Mm And uh, could you tell us where you, uh, I guess, began to work on this motivation seriously? Was it in grad school? And how was grad school perhaps instrumental in solidifying your intentions of uh, pursuing sociology as a career?
0: Yeah. Um, So I did my PhD in sociology um, at the University of Illinois at Chicago. And um, it was a really great experience. And, um, you know, I think in that program, there isn't um, there isn't any pressure, I think, to separate your sort of political commitments from your research. And I really, um, that was really inspirational to me and really, really important to my sort of development as a scholar. I always felt like, you know, my commitments to issues of gender and sexuality, my commitments to sort of community-based work in domestic violence, I felt like that was supported and seen as sort of integral to my research rather than separate. Um, And I think that was what drew me to that program was that people were, um, faculty and grad students there, were really engaged in their communities and really interested in doing public-facing work and politically engaged work. Um, and so that was really important to me um, to sort of learn kind of that way of doing sociology. And it really helped me find my place, I think. Um, and then when I was in grad school, too, I also got I started working um, with my advisor and with other graduate students who were really interested in sort of theories of health. And I learned a lot about sort of um, medicalization and biopolitics and sort of how, um, how we're governed how we're disciplined how we come to think of our lives as sort of um as saturated in in sort of um discourses about health and embodiment in sort of um the sort of compulsion to sort of better oneself in those ways and i got really interested in that so i wanted to sort of tie um my interest in gender-based violence to that those kinds of theoretical frameworks I was really interested in. Um, and at the same time, you know, I noticed that the domestic violence field was becoming increasingly medicalized and inc- increasingly clinical. Um, and so it ended up kind of fitting together that I could pull together my sort of new theoretical interest that I had in grad school with um, my sort of longstanding interest in gender-based violence. Mm-hmm.
1: And yeah, I just wanted to give a big shout out to the UIC Sociology Department for actually encouraging such politically committed um, and brilliant um, work that, as you said, doesn't separate the political from the scholarly, which I think is is so fabulous. Um, and I would love to know more about how this particular book was conceived. How did this project unfold? And um, you know, how did you decide that you wanted to write this book and tell the story of how intimate violence shapes women's citizenship in the United States.
0: Yeah, thanks so much for asking that. I think um, for me it was a couple of things. So on the one hand, you know, I had spent a lot of time in my late teens and early 20s in domestic violence agencies, you know, local feminist-founded community-based programs um, that mostly had like peer-led counseling models. So like these were not professionals who were running support groups or um, counseling sessions. They were like community members, women who had used these services in the past, um, people who were involved in the anti-violence movement. So it was kind of, um, you know, they were intended to be as these sort of anti-professional community agencies um but over time they had become more and more professionalized domestic violence agencies had um which isn't you know necessarily bad but i noticed in chicago that um you know most people i met in domestic violence work were clinically trained trauma therapists and that was pretty new um so i really noticed you know people coming directly out of social work school um and were sort of clinically licensed. Um, were most of the people working in these agencies, at least the agencies who could afford to hire people like that. Um, and so um, I thought that was really interesting that the sort of domestic violence field, which was originally pretty anti-medical, pretty anti-therapy, um, had become had come to really revolve around sort of clinical professional work where clients were on wait lists to see counselors in sort of one hour time slots, just like any kind of mental health agency. Um, And so that was one thing I noticed. The other thing I noticed was that the survivors I would talk to in agencies had um, a certain sort of way of talking about what it meant to be a survivor. And I got really interested in that. So Um, I remember this moment when one woman who I was interviewing said, like, I'm not a survivor yet. I'm still a victim. I'm not a survivor yet. And I was really curious about what that meant. And it turned out for her, like a lot of the women who I interacted with, um, survivorhood meant going to professional therapy in order to sort of recover from abuse to recover from domestic violence. And that was supposed to happen whether or not, you know, the material aspects of your life were actually better. So like you could be living in worse housing and poorer than you were before when you were with your abusive partner and yet you were still supposed to recover and sort of show all these signs of improvement, psychological improvement. Um and so I got really interested in this kind of pressure that survivors were feeling to kind of get better and be resilient. Um, And, you know, around the same time, this this really famous agency um, in Chicago, Rape Victim Advocates, changed its name to Resilience. And I think that that, um, that kind of like discursive shift became just really apparent to me um, that we were really shifting our focus from victimization to trauma and resilience. So I got really interested in that kind of shift and what it meant for survivors. Um, you know, so I noticed that kind of institutional pressure, like you have to go to professional therapy to show that you're like doing all the right things. Um, but you, there's also this like cultural pressure, right. To like tell a tell a good story, tell a resilient story. Like when sexual assault victims come forward in the public sphere, you know, it's, there's a lot of pressure to tell a sort of story about recovery, a story of like things got better for me because I, I, um, you know, I, I overcame this trauma. Um, and so I got really interested in in that kind of cultural pressure too, right, to kind of tell, tell a story of overcoming. Um, and I think for the women who I was interviewing, it wasn't clear that that was like a goal that they had on their own. They had been kind of pulled into therapeutic services as part of their other institutional involvements. So like, they needed to get a visa through the immigration system and they had to attend counseling for a while in order to get that they got told by the judge in their custody case that they needed to go to therapy for a while the child um, services system was forcing them to go to a domestic violence support group for three months before they could get their kids back all of these ways that women were sort of actually coerced into therapy Um, And so what is recovery? What does resilience look like when it's coerced instead of voluntary? And when women really don't see this as like the good, nice side of the system, it's just another part of the system. Um, And so I got really interested in sort of what it means when therapy and sort of these notions of therapeutic progress and recovery become linked up to this kind of punitive infrastructure. Mm
1: Yeah, thank you for that. That was such a um, comprehensive uh, um, overview of the book too. And um, I just wanted to add that in the book, you explore how intimate violence affects the way um, survivors relate to the state, to their community, to work to family, and even to their own self-understandings as rights-bearing citizens. And at the heart of the book, there's an explicit reckoning with the fact that intimate violence is what you call multi-sided, right? So could you speak a little bit about what you mean by this and how this um, approach or this understanding shaped your research methods and design?
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, You know, I think... There's a couple parts to this. One part is that we often think of violence, especially domestic violence, in in pretty simplistic terms that are really focused on physical violence. So like a punch, a slap, a kick. And that may be repetitive, but we're usually focused on that moment of kind of physical violence. I mean, even domestic violence surveys that are widely used by researchers often ask, The question is framed as like in the last 12 months, has your partner ever kicked, punched, slapped, choked, strangled you? Um, And this is our kind of measure of what domestic violence is. But when you talk to domestic violence victims and as people have been doing for decades, we know that this isn't really what characterizes domestic violence. Um, Evan Stark, who's a researcher and an activist in domestic violence, he calls it coercive control instead of domestic violence. Because these aspects of sort of coercion and entrapment are really what constitute domestic violence. This, this um, isolation and the sense of being sort of trapped by your partner and controlled by your partner are really what constitute domestic violence and women who show up in um, at shelters, for example, that's typically what they're experiencing, is that kind of um, control and entrapment rather than you know the occasional punch or slap. Um, so, <clears throat> excuse me. So we have this sort of <clears throat> public imaginary of domestic violence as being very sort of discrete incidents of physical violence that's dyadic. So it's just between two people, and it happens like at home, like in the private sphere. Um, But the women that I interviewed didn't talk about violence that way. Um, They talked about their child services appointments. They talked about dealing with housing programs. They talked about how their ex-abuser would show up at their job interview um, they talked about learning how to tell their story in support group. They talked about dealing with their kids' therapists. So their experiences of intimate abuse were really embedded in this whole like bureaucratic infrastructure tied to victimization. Um, so these were like the scenes and the places and the experts that defined domestic violence for them. It wasn't this... Um, you know, this one big blow up fight where we called the police, that was important, of course, but it was like, what happened after that? What happened after he was arrested? What happened when the police, you know, made me feel like it was my fault? What happened when, you know, the prosecutor decided not to take up the case? What happened when I went to a counselor for the first time and had to describe my experiences to a stranger? Um, Those were the kinds of scenes that kind of, Made up someone's experiences of abuse. So I wanted to think about domestic violence as embedded in these multiple systems. Um, and those can variously harm or help victims, right? Like it's not it's not it's not one or the other. Some of those aspects may be helpful. The identity of victim or survivor may feel, great and helpful to someone, or it may feel oppressive and coercive to another person, depending on all of these institutional involvements that they have. So I really wanted a way to think about intimate violence as as not intimate, as not just contained in the in the private sphere, but as as very public and very embedded in our our public understandings of abuse and the way that we treat survivors as they navigate systems, but also in all of their interactions with these state programs that were totally coerced and non voluntary. Um, so I wanted to think about abuse in that way, and then the other part of it is that. Um, Domestic violence scholars for a long time have talked in different ways about how intimate violence is itself a violation of, of women's citizenship, both collectively, because this is a widespread social problem, um, collectively, but also individually. You know, the experience of intimate abuse. Severs people from their communities. It severs people from families, social networks. It forces people, forces victims to stop working, to stop going to school, to disengage as active parents in their kids' lives, um, to cut off ties with loved ones, um, to not to to sort of not engage in the community programs they might otherwise be engaged in this experience, because it's so isolating, because domestic violence um, functions through sort of isolation and entrapment, is it, it is itself a violation of citizenship and, and disallows victims from engaging sort of equally in, in the public sphere. And so I think um, that was important to me too, to think through how the services that we set up that are supposed to help people sort of re-engage often further isolate and harm victims, rather than sort of reconnecting them to those, to those supports that they need.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and to get into the meat of the book, in the first chapter, you offer us a very illuminating deep dive into the history of feminist anti-violence activism and its relationship to the, to the state um, in the US. And I I highly recommend this historical deep dive to anyone interested in learning how feminist organizing has evolved historically. Um, But I wanted to ask you a question about the second chapter, actually, in which you discuss how PTSD um, and the language of trauma took root in uh, anti-violence work. So how and why did trauma become so salient in the world of domestic violence activism and services? And how does this impact the conceptualization of the victim versus survivor binary?
0: Yeah, thank you. That's such a great question. I think, you know, the, the language of trauma and the, the diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD, are really important to understanding the development of victim services as they connect to the state sort of more generally, um, you know, PTSD comes, the, the diagnosis of PTSD and it's sort of like official uptake into psychiatry, um, really comes in the, in the United States comes from veterans activism and, you know, veterans are a really good example a sort of really clear example of something I talk about in the book, which is traumatic citizenship, which is how people have to learn to tell stories about their trauma in order to get resources from the state. I think in many ways, veterans are like the most clear example of this, because um, in order to get disability benefits, for example, you're going to need a diagnosis of post-traumatic stress disorder, and you have to you know, convince mental health experts that you're suffering from post-traumatic stress disorder in order to get that. Um, And so it's a really clear example of how um, the the sort of more general idea that you've suffered from trauma and need professional therapy in order to recover, how that gets linked up to the sort of the way state services and resources are doled out. Um, And I think that history of psychiatric expertise um, is really tied to domestic violence too. So in the 1980s, for example, um, domestic violence, um, workers, activists, lawyers started using psychiatric experts to um, to try to win court cases for battered women, as they called them in the 80s. So, for example, women who had had, had to kill their abusers in order to escape Um They needed to be able to say that these women were suffering from something real, um, that the sort of experience of domestic violence had traumatized them in such a way that killing their abuser was the only way out. And so they started relying pretty heavily on various kinds of psychiatric experts to make these claims, and this is one of the ways that psychiatric expertise becomes and around notions of trauma, in particular, becomes really tethered to domestic violence work. Um, and so that's a that's a sort of history that I get into in the book a little bit more, um, because I'm really interested in how how notions of trauma over time have constructed victims differently. Um, And in the 90s, um, trauma becomes even bigger Um, and a whole range of new kinds of mental health experts are using the language of trauma um, to think through a couple different things, to think through what it means to survive violence on the one hand. But, um, you know, people are probably also familiar with the fact that trauma gets used in to talk about structural harm, too. Trauma gets used to talk about what it means to live under the violences of patriarchy sort of generally. Trauma gets used now to think about what it means to live in a sort of in a racist society. Right. Um, that, that creates all of these traumas over people's lives that they have to navigate. And it's one of the things that might, you know, create poor health outcomes for people of color in the United States, for example, it's one of those things that's hard to measure. So people use trauma in all these complex ways to think about sort of pervasive forms of harm. And that gets that that gets um, taken up in the domestic violence world too. So people are trying to use trauma in this way where it refers both to big structural harms, like the violence of living under patriarchy, for example, where, while it also refers to like... Um, you know, having experienced child sexual abuse. And so you're suffering this long-term trauma. And then um, that helps explain the sort of domestic violence that you're now experiencing as an adult. Um, And so it gets taken up in all of these complex ways that sort of combine this political structural side of trauma with this kind of more clinical side of trauma. And I think we still see that now. I think that that is one of the things that makes trauma so fascinating is because it does capture both of those things. Um, And domestic violence policy experts really saw it as a helpful way to explain victims to non-sympathetic listeners. So like, if you can explain, quote unquote, why she stays, right, because that's something that people always ask, well, why don't you just leave? Why, Why? you know, why did you stay? Experts, um, or, you know, policymakers in the domestic violence world started to find it really helpful to explain to people, well, it's a traumatic experience. She's staying because of her trauma. Um, and here's all the sort of, um, mental health effects of something like domestic violence. It causes depression, chronic sleeplessness, anxiety, all of these things associated with PTSD, hypervigilance, flashbacks. Um, and so they start finding it really helpful to kind of use this language to communicate with people who wouldn't otherwise be sympathetic and say, like, this is actually a clinical problem. Um, and so that becomes really pervasive in the field. And they find it helpful in part because, you um, trauma is an interesting psychiatric diagnosis. It suggests that the cause of what's happening to you is outside of yourself, right? The trauma is external. It's an external event. Um, You know, for veterans, it's the context of war that produces trauma. It's having to um, use a weapon against another human being that causes trauma. It's not something inside of you. It's something that gets put inside of you by a horrible experience. And so feminists see it as a way to take blame away from victims, right? It's not something that she's doing. It's not an inherent trait of her as as a victim. It's that someone's doing this to her and that's causing her to have this reaction. So it's seen as sort of a more sympathetic um, approach. To thinking about the mental health consequences of domestic violence, um, so all of these things kind of come together and make it this really popular discourse throughout the 1990s, and then in the 2000s, because the field has professionalized so much, it really gets um, it really gets attached to the types of clinical care that are provided in domestic violence agencies in kind of a whole new way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think
1: um, in the 2000s and after, you write about how the trauma turn um, is in line with a series of technocratic and expertise-oriented neoliberal healthcare approaches, largely even in, uh, say, thinking about governing poverty, right? Um, This uh, uh, whole expertise-oriented sort of approach. Um, And in that you uh, clearly show how self-care becomes an important framework with which trauma workers administer therapeutic programs. So what are the kinds of self-care strategies that trauma workers teach their clients, particularly, you know, now, now-ish? And uh, how does this self-care approach factor into the feminist logics of anti-violence work? Yeah, that's
0: such a great question. Um, yeah, self-care is like a whole... whole thing isn't it um (laughs) um, yeah it's it's kind of hard to escape the language of self-care no matter who you are i think um but it is used a lot in social services um right now various kinds of social services um you know homelessness hiv care you know everything self-care is everywhere um and kind of the reason, I think, the sort of like big reason that this discourse of self-care is kind of insidious and why we might call it, you know, quote unquote, neoliberal is because it shifts the burden of, of care from, from institutions or from the state or from communities to individuals, um, right? That's the kind of like move that self-care makes, um, even though, of course, all intentions are good when people use that language. What it does is it asks people to shoulder the burden individually of what their communities or the state should be providing. Um, and in domestic violence agencies, this gets taken up in a couple of ways. Um, one is that workers, people who work in domestic violence agencies, are asked to do self-care for themselves, right? Because it is in fact quite challenging and difficult to do this work. There's a very high level of burnout. It's not paid well. Um, And um, it's really, really hard work. Um, And, you know, one of the things that domestic violence agencies have done is, you know, do things like offer a a self-care room for staff to go in where there's like yoga mats and they can like, Lay down and listen to a podcast for a half an hour, or some meditative sounds, or like they'll offer a, a sort of trauma informed yoga class um, once every couple weeks for a staff or something like that, and the idea is like, staff, you need to learn how to take care of yourselves, um, because otherwise you can't be doing this this really difficult domestic violence work um but of course for staff you know another thing that you could do is like provide better vacation better pay um better supervision um it sort of absolves agencies of many of the sort of responsibilities they have to create better workplaces even though you know i think from their perspective this is an effort to make a better workplace um And so self-care becomes another thing, in my view, it becomes another thing that workers have to do on top of the many, many things they already have to do. Um, And so it becomes a sort of burden, a kind of responsibility on workers to like be the best trauma workers they can. They have to also deal with their own trauma and that becomes kind of individualized. But self-care is also something that you talk to clients about for sure. Um, you know, I've not, um, I'm not on a high horse here. Like I also use this language when I'm like, you know, on a hotline call or something. And the reason is that it's often the only thing you can really offer someone, you know, um, if someone's calling you in crisis and you're listening and offering support often, you know, you can't. Venmo them their rent. You can't get them into better housing right away. You can hook them up with resources that maybe could potentially someday get there, but probably not. What you can do is give them some like small strategies for getting through the night. And I think that that's one of the reasons that self-care becomes such a popular discourse to use with clients because these agencies just don't have the material resources available to make real structural transformations in their clients' lives often. You know, they can offer temporary housing, some short-term support. Maybe if they're lucky they can pay to fix her car or like get her kids into a free childcare program for a few months or something like that. Maybe they can give her bus vouchers, but they're not going to be offering typically like really long-term stabilizing resources that would um, that would really transform her life. And so I think self-care is something that you can offer when there's not that much you can offer. Um, and what you can do is teach clients some ways to like, Um, tune into their bodies, do some mindfulness techniques, right? Some ways to sort of ease the panic, let's say next time they have to go to court and face their abuser, or when they have to go meet with a lawyer, or when they have to meet with child services. So you can teach them some techniques for like getting through these grueling moments of these sort of bureaucracies of victimization that that a lot of the clients are working their way through. So it becomes a way to help them manage, you know, what I think of as the labor of survivorhood um, and help becomes a way, um, one of the only ways sometimes that domestic violence agencies can really um, offer like concrete strategies for like, here's how you can get through the next couple of days. And so it's completely understandable why this becomes so... Um, such a prominent kind of discourse in domestic violence agencies. But of course, then it's also another thing that survivors have to do, right? So like when I interviewed women, they would often say, you know, I'm not doing very well right now. I haven't been taking care of myself. I've been like really bad. You know, I've been smoking too much. I've, I haven't have been doing my mindfulness meditations. I skipped support group last week because, you know, uh, my kid was sick or whatever it was. And so there's all this guilt about not doing self-care. Um, so it's really a double-edged sword in that way.
1: Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah. Um, that's, it's, it's so, it's like, yeah, the double-edged sword is exactly the right metaphor for the situation where they find themselves in. Um, The following chapter, the chapter, I think, titled Becoming Legible, was also actually really difficult to read, for it's so vividly laid out how women are expected to perform, as you put it, the uh, labor of survivorhood. And in doing so, they have to embody and enact a respectable motherhood, right? And you show so sensitively how this demand of dealing with interpersonal violence intersects with additional pressures of structural racialized violence, such as um, even like immigration-related precarities, and the chapter makes uh, clear how domestic violence isn't just a series of violent episodes or incidents, but an ongoing process of navigating coercive men, institutions, experts, and categories. I would love for you to perhaps give us some examples of how this processual violence looks like. I know you started talking about it while introducing the book and um, talking about this entrapment and this coercive uh, process that spills over multiple sites and domains. Uh, but it would be great if you could um, perhaps give us a maybe a few examples to to you know make legible uh, the idea of means to become legible.
0: yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, that's such a good question because part of the part of the point of that chapter is to really show how you know not everyone is able to um, not everyone is able to, I guess become legible as a good survivor. This is an exclusionary. Um, Process. It's an exclusionary discourse, survivorhood is, it's an exclusionary set of systems that sort of see some experiences as more legitimate than others. And some women are able to sort of navigate through these systems more easily than other women. Um, And that's because of um, often because of the existing sort of systemic inequalities in their lives. And so, yeah, at one point in the chapter – I think I opened that chapter by talking about Brenda – and I think um, Brenda's story really shows how how women are expected to enact survivorhood, where the, while they're also expected to like be ideal victims in the criminal system, um, and this often creates this like impossibility, this like deep tension in their performances of respectability that's really difficult to overcome. So, for example, Brenda. Um, the, process, the state's attorney was pursuing felony domestic violence charges against Brenda's abuser. So um, I talk about how in court she has to go present as a victim, right? She has to emphasize her powerlessness and her subordination. She has to emphasize her injuries. She has to go sit across from him in court and tell the story of her victimization. And that's really what's demanded of her in that setting is that she perform victimhood. Um and um, the problem is that you know, every other day of the week, Brenda has to um, focus more on the therapeutic and that's because her kids were taken away um, by the state when um, so a lot of women who experience domestic violence are bound up in the child services system, often because, you know, violence from a man in the house is seen as something that they should be able to prevent or not subjecting their children to. Um, And so their kids, they might just be under surveillance by the child welfare system or their kids might actually be taken from the home. And Brenda's kids were taken from the home, she has five kids. And um, so as part of the process to get her kids back. What she has to do is become a good survivor, and what I mean by that is she has to go to essentially endless therapy and counseling sessions. She has to take her, she has to go to family therapy with her kids. She has to go to two types of therapy herself. Most of the women that I interviewed were in involved in two or three kinds of therapy at the same time to try to satisfy the requirements of all of these institutions that are demanding that they go to therapy. Um, So Brenda was in all of these therapeutic programs trying to demonstrate that she's making her life better, right? That she's becoming a better mother so that she can take care of her kids. Of course, she hadn't really done anything wrong as a mother. She had been in an abusive relationship. um, And that person had made her life extremely difficult and had also been violent toward her children. And that's why the kids got taken away. Um, But Brenda was in all these... She was under all these very intensive demands from these therapeutic programs. She had to show her her pill bottles um, to show that she was taking her psychiatric medication. She had to show that to her child services caseworker. She had to go to um, she had to go to Alcoholics Anonymous, even though she didn't feel that she needed to anymore. She had to show that she was getting new housing. She she was holding down two jobs at the time. She was. Um, Going to family therapy with her kids and two kinds of individual therapy for herself. And then her therapist said, well, you know, the kids aren't ready for family therapy. So we got to go back and the kids have to do individual therapy and then we do the family therapy all over again. So there were all of these struggles in the system to kind of demonstrate that she was you know, a good enough mom. And one of the ways that you demonstrate that you're a good enough mom is that you're working on yourself psychologically, that you're overcoming the domestic violence through investing in all these therapeutic programs. Um, But it was so hard for Brenda to show that she was like recovering, right? And that's because, in part, because she was poor and black and had five kids who had all been taken away. And she lived on the south side of Chicago and was in all these temporary, unstable housing situations in violent neighborhoods. And bad things kept happening. Um, and so she had all this instability around her because of her material circumstances and her family history, and all of these things that made it really hard to show that she was in recovery, um, that she was like getting better. And so you can imagine that for like you know a middle class white professional woman like me, if I went to a few therapy sessions and said to the caseworker, okay, I'm better, I'd probably be able to convince the caseworker that that's true. Because I have all these, you know, hallmarks of stability in my life that I can rely on to to sort of link up my psychological betterment to. But Brenda didn't have that because she had all this material instability and precarity, um, surrounded by, you know, histories, of segregation in the city of Chicago, for example, all of these things shaped her experience. Um, And so to escape that, she just had to do so much more work in around attending therapeutic programs to really show that she was going above and beyond to get her kids back. And so it's that kind of process that I'm trying to track in the book, where um, all of the sort of intersecting social Precarities in people's lives, um, that's what's really shaping if they look like a good survivor or not. And nevertheless, it's made to seem as if they just need to work harder in therapy and go to more sort of therapeutic programs. So I'm interested in how that, you know, notions of deservingness and worthiness. Um, especially around motherhood and other kind of gendered characteristics become tied to this infrastructure of therapeutic sort of progress and betterment. Mm -hmm. Mm
1: -hmm. Yeah, and, um, you know, one can see how quickly that becomes a vicious trap that is very hard to get out of for certain women over others, right? And, um, yeah... Well, on a, perhaps a slightly different note, and in a chapter titled Gaslighting, the crux of which can be found in a very popular ASR article called The Sociology of Gaslighting that I absolutely love and recommend to everybody that I come across. <laughs> so in the chapter version of that article, you demonstrate how women push back against um, these so-called crazy making tactics um, using their body and physical health as evidence So why did uh, the body and this embodiment idea become the site of claims making for women against men who gaslight them and perhaps institutions that gaslight Mm -hmm.
0: them? Yeah, yeah. Thanks for picking up on that. That's, um, you know, I'm so interested in the body and embodiment, especially for survivors of violence. Um, In part because the body is both, I think, it's both a site of violence itself. It's a site of destabilization for the women I interviewed, but it's also a site of claims making. It's something they have to use their bodies to say, I'm a good victim. I'm a good survivor. They have to show up with their bodies in court. They have to show up with their bodies in therapy, um, and use them to sort of show that the harm that they've experienced. So I'm really interested in, in the body as a site of both violence and claims making here. Um, And I think this was something I noticed really early on when I was doing interviews. So I would talk to women about the violence they experienced in their relationships, as well as the harm they experienced navigating, um, for example, mental health systems. Um, And a lot of the women I interviewed talked about the harms they experienced when interacting with psychiatrists or with mental health providers who were not trained in domestic violence. Um, and who clearly didn't understand the sort of power and control issues in domestic violence and made women sort of feel pathological for um, being involved with their abusers. Um, And I think um, one thing I noticed was that women were experiencing all these kinds of harms in their relationships that are really difficult to tell a story about, really difficult to describe to anyone who doesn't understand. And that's because they're like, these gaslighty crazy making things like twisting reality accusing women of infidelity making up stories of women's infidelity blaming them for everything making them feel like everything's their fault um you know all of these sort of gaslighting tactics are really difficult to tell someone about you often don't have the language of gaslighting at your disposal so you don't know that that's what's happening you're just confused and it's very difficult to talk about. Um, and so something I noticed early on was I when I was doing interviews is that women would describe the abuse as like, you know, a twisted state of reality, a kind of upside down world as the twilight zone. They used all of these ways of sort of describing the unreality of domestic violence, the way that it kind of tilts your reality and makes you think up is down and down is up. Um, and one of the ways that they sort of Um, you know, when they talked about this, they would use sort of physical ailments, embodied pains, physical sensations to talk about these harms. And in the book, I talk about how I think this is a way to make these like really shadowy experiences visible and legible to other people. So, for example, one of the women I interviewed described these fibroids that had grown in her uterus. And she said her doctor had never seen fibroids grow that quickly. And she said, you know, in no uncertain terms, I know this is because of the mental abuse that he was putting me through the mental abuse made my fibroids grow. Um, other women talked about miscarriages they had because they felt that the mental manipulation had made their bodies toxic to a growing um, child um, and so these were not like you know physically explicable embodied events, but the women were theorizing them. They were theorizing those those pains, those ailments, those those physical events as resulting from gaslighting or mental manipulation. And so I was really interested in how um, be, when when we don't hear people's experiences, when we can't understand them, when we don't have a language for talking about them or explicating them. Um, sometimes people rely on, on things that they can show us are real, right? Like physical evidence to show us that, you know, this really happened to me. He really, he really hurt me and you can see it because I have fibroids, right? Um, and so, um, there were often these sort of, these sort of different discourses of health and embodiment that showed up in these interviews in part because women are trying to sort of process what happened to them and explain it in a way that they can show me was 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 real was legitimate
1: yeah and it's interesting to think about how we go from i guess the medicalization or the psychiatrization of trauma as being like in the mind to this sort of articulation of uh, trauma as having effects on the body right so like bringing the body in in a you know and it's it's interesting that uh, the women do that and use uh, their bodies as as evidence um, and, um such a um interesting i guess counterbalance to the whole um, psychiatric um uh, narrative and approach um, in the trauma uh, yeah yeah. And in your final chapter, you show how women navigate the pressures of heterosexuality as an institution and how sexual and reproductive citizenship become sites of struggle for women as they navigate uh, the status of uh, survivorhood. So how did uh, the women you spent time with reinterpret the demands of heterosexuality and how did they imagine new sexual futures?
0: Yeah, thank you for asking that. I. One of the reasons I wanted to write a chapter about um, heterosexuality is because I often feel frustrated with literature on domestic violence and stories about domestic violence victims because very rarely does this literature acknowledge or engage with the fact that these women are sexual subjects and sexual agents. Um, And that feels frustrating to me because it seems like we're in... Sort of falling into this trap of representing them as like, you know, res- respectability, you know, like respectable moms and whatnot by making them like asexual. Um, and I think I, I felt frustrated with that in the literature. And I've also felt frustrated with um, when we talk about gender based violence, we need to talk about heterosexuality. We need to talk about heterosexuality as an institution um, because a lot of the the sort of norms and ideologies that create the problem of gender based violence are rooted in heterosexuality. Um, and so I wanted to think about that. And in part that came up because the women that I interviewed, it turned out really struggled with with their sexual identities and, and sexual subjectivities because their sexuality was pathologized when they navigated these institutions. Um, so the sort of like there's often this implicit requirement of going through these kinds of programs which is that you shouldn't be dating new men, you shouldn't be seeing new men. Um you shouldn't be developing new sexual and romantic relationships because the message is like you failed at that. You're bad at that. You pick the wrong guys. Um and as much as in domestic violence programs people say like it's not your fault and I think really believe that there's also this kind of side eye if you like have a new boyfriend or something like that. Um, and the women that I interviewed really felt that pressure. Like they really understood that as an implicit program requirement of going through court or child services or even sort of softer, nicer domestic violence programs. And um, so I wanted to talk about that and I wanted to think through how women um sort of redefine their what what um jennifer Hirsch and Seamus Kahn in their book Sexual Citizens would call their sexual projects. So how the women sort of redefine their sexual projects, their kind of um their kind of the way that they think about their sexuality and navigate um the future of their of their sexual or romantic lives, um their sort of goals and Um, the way that they think about their reproductive and, um, and sort of romantic futures. So, you know, it's not that they weren't heterosexual anymore, or that they, the women I interviewed, you know, most of them didn't want to start dating women or anything like that. It was more about redefining the role of kind of heterosexual coupledom in their lives and questioning, like, should this be what success means in my life because that feels like a lie now um the idea that like getting married and having kids would be like the greatest future in the world for me that turned out to be a lie um and um so the women i interviewed were really engaged in this process of kind of rethinking the heterosexual messages that they got these kinds of ideologies of success um and marriage is kind of like the golden ticket to a good future some of them questioned um, motherhood and wondered why they had become mothers and wished that they weren't still tied to their abusers through shared children um, and resented their abusers for wanting them to have children. Um, And so there's all these questions around motherhood that come up for survivors too. And I wanted to think seriously about that. Um, So some of the ways So it combines, right, because the actual experience of domestic violence makes women question, like, the promise of a heterosexual future. Um, And then also these programs are shaming women for wanting to, like, find new partners or, you know, have casual sex or whatever it is that they want to do. And so there's all these complex messages around heterosexuality and motherhood circulating in these spaces. Um, And for some of the women, you know, this involved saying I'm never going to have kids again. Um, I don't think motherhood is my ideal. Rejecting the idea that they'd ever have a live-in partner again, refusing to date. Um, All of these new strategies they developed for navigating sort of heterosexuality and motherhood. And some of this was hypervigilance related to kind of systems involvement because they knew they had to sort of you know, look good and independent, um, like good survivors while they were in systems. But some of it was like, you know what, the jig is up, I see the role that I'm supposed to take on in this heterosexual future, and I don't want it anymore. Um, and so there was a mix of all of that stuff happening. And I wanted to think about how, how women sort of disidentify from the ideological promises of heterosexuality after they survive violence. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, thank you. Um, I found that chapter to be extremely interesting and I felt like that uh, the book ended with this empirical chapter on a note that uh, gave um, an interesting uh, twist, I guess, to the story. And we saw the women in, in a fuller light. And I think just like getting to know the way they were thinking about their sexual projects was was uh, really interesting um, well, I'm so glad that we've talked about the book, and um, again, I've, I've read the book, but I've learned so much more, again, in this conversation with you, and I'm super glad that we got a chance to do this. But before I let you go, and I know it's been almost an hour, and um, you've shared so much of your time, and I really appreciate it, but I would love to know what you're working on now and what we can expect to read by you in the near future.
0: Yeah, so I'm working on a couple projects right now. The first is um, a standalone book that I'll write on gaslighting that's coming up. Um, (laughs) So um, I've been doing interviews with people about gaslighting, sort of new interviews, um, not just domestic violence victims, but people who feel they've experienced gaslighting in the workplace or From their parents um in all different kinds of settings so thinking through sort of um what mental manipulation looks like and how it's structured by social inequalities um so that'll be um out sometime in the future with princeton university press and thank you thank you um so that's going to happen eventually um And don't ask me about the timeline yet. (laughs) And um, I'm also working on a project on domestic violence during COVID, um, in part because there's been so much speculation about the sort of numbers, like has domestic violence gone up or down during COVID? Um, And I really wanted to understand what people's actual lived experiences of violence during the pandemic were like. So I'm doing right now, qualitative life story style interviews with um, survivors of domestic violence about their experiences during the pandemic and also how they managed to navigate services during that period. Um, So I hopefully will be um, completing those interviews this summer and writing some articles about, um, you know, the kinds of sort of intersection of crises in people's lives and what that looks like
1: Yeah, both, I mean, both of those projects sound interesting and important. And um, yeah, I can't wait to read them. Um, And you're such a, such a lucid writer that, uh, yeah, I'm excited to to read what emerges from these wonderful two projects.
0: Thank you so much. Well, thank you, Paige, for taking time
1: out and uh, chatting with me about the politics of surviving. Congratulations again. And um, I know it must be about... Uh, close to noon where you're at. So I'm going to let you have a wonderful day. And I look forward to chatting again super soon.
0: Thank you so much for having me.